Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Your reputation precedes you. Thank you, sir. Wasn't a compliment. Trust your instincts. Don't think. Just do. You think up there, you're dead. Believe me. The end is inevitable, Maverick. Your kind is headed for extinction. Maybe so, sir. But not today. Welcome to episode 311 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and TV and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try not to royally F them up. In our very, very humble opinion, I'm Giles Alderson. I'm Dom Lenoir. And we are the Filmmakers Podcast. Today on the show, we have a very special guest. He's pretty exciting. Yeah, you could say he was top. Uh, of his class yep uh, you could say he's a gun believable guest you could say that you could say that I'd be his wingman any day you could who is it Don Lamar <laughs> <laughs> it's Joseph Kaczynski director of Top Gun Maverick uh, obviously you read that uh, at the title so you know but anyway that was fun for us to yeah, do yeah it was fun for us yeah. we had to we had to keep this under wraps I mean I, I've been sort of uh, top secret you top, could say I've been very top secret because <laughs> yeah. we've got to do a lot of effort for this episode uh, and it's it's a, it's a really exciting huge guest for, you yeah. know, and it's, it's one of our favourite films and uh, so yeah, I had to keep very, very um, tightly sealed lips about it. Yes. Now, Top Gun Maverick. If you don't know, if you've not you heard of know. this film. If you, if you don't know, what are you doing <laughs> on this podcast? Honestly, uh, it's a sequel to Top Gun, um, and it made one point five billion. One point five billion. Uh, in the box office it is now available on Prime and Apple TV and it's gone back to the cinema <gasps> for two weeks only Woo-hoo! I mean you, you have to go and see the cinema I've, I've seen it twice in the cinema mm. and it surprised me no sorry three times in the cinema and it surprised me how much each time it's just as exciting as the time before it's just such a big blockbuster it's brilliant and Dom got to sit down with the director Joseph Kaczynski I did not you did Dom, not. I think you called me, messaged me. Yep. I was in Spain in somewhere, maybe some cave somewhere. Yep. Looking at stalactites. Caving in. <laughs> deep in a hole. And I, <laughs> and I, I got this, this really exciting call from Dom saying, uh, I've got a really, really big guest. This is really exciting. And basically the date of the recording was two days before I came back from filming in Spain. But I didn't care because it's for you guys. We wanted you to have this. As much as I wanted to do this, I, I knew that Dom would smash it and I knew it would be fantastic. So, what did you talk about, Dom? Well, I'm excited. Oh, so many things. Uh, <laughs> we, we talked about his preparation. Oh. We talked about uh, him going on actual Navy cruises wow. out in the sea. Really? You know, yeah, going on going on his, his research mission. Wow. Um, we talked about how you make a blockbuster. Mm. Uh, working with cast. We talked talk about working with legends of film like Tom Cruise. Jerry Brockheimer, Christopher McQuarrie, like all these titans that were involved in helping make this film. That's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, if you don't know, Joseph Kaczynski, you might go, oh, has he just blown up from the middle of nowhere? Kind of has. Um, back in, what, 2010? 10 years ago, he made Tron Legacy. That's kind of his 
break out. Before that, he'd done music mm. videos and bits of VFX and then done some video games. Mm. And to suddenly break out with Tron Legacy, it's huge. And then he directed Oblivion, which also starred Tom Cruise, which he wrote as well. Uh, and he made the graphic novel, um, its original story. Then he directed Only the Brave and then Top Gun Maverick. And also this year, Spiderhead, which starred Chris Hemsworth and Miles Teller. So this guy knows what he's doing. Right, Tom Cruise asked him back to direct Top Gun Maverick. Wow! Well, there's, there's the story. The story's in the episode, is uh, it? so we won't we oh ruin for you now. Oh, but, look, but, but, I, yeah, it's. Uh, I can't wait to listen. Honestly, uh, I cannot wait. Yeah, Super excited. It's pretty exciting. And we got to record in the Hamyard Hotel, which is one of my favourite places. Oh. Um, Big shout out to uh, Jane for giving me a nice uh, Jane from Paramount gave me a nice cookie. Look at oh look at you dropping the Paramount name. <laughs> oh Jane from Paramount gave me a cookie. Good was, for was, you, Tom. Good for you. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> before before we dive in, there's one thing which we do we do talk about in the episode, but I think we should talk about here, which is these kind of big blockbusters. They should get the love they deserve from awards season. I mean, you know, mm. films like Interstellar, Inception, yep. you know, these huge films that actually have, a, you know, they're, they're brilliant filmmaking and they often get snubbed. Yeah. And it's really annoying. Because to make a film like this, you've really got to know what you're doing. You've really got to be on top of your game. And I, so I don't see why these aren't rewarded. Yeah. So awards. BAFTA, Oscars. If you're listening to this, which you should be, they will be, they will be. Um, you know, give this some, give this some awards. I, I totally agree. That's how it works. <laughs> That's how it works, right? That's it. We've said it. That's it. There we um, go. There we go. We are what three quarters through our tour now for Three Day Millionaire. Yes. Yep. Screening tour on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> on the other end of the spectrum from Top Gun Maverick, <laughs> from one indie film to another. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so if you haven't seen that in cinemas yet, it is available now on Sky Store. Uh, myself and the big man Jack Spring uh, properly chatted to Dom Lenoir last Tuesday mm. all about how we made that film. And really, we talked about mental health in film and mm. the importance of having good teams and, and working well. With yeah, it was a good crew. episode, actually. Yeah, it was really informative. I, I, I really enjoyed the chat. So, if it's your first time listening to this podcast, just because Joseph Kaczynski's name popped up, I talk a maverick. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the show. We have... Uh, over 300 episodes and we've been doing this for five years so go back to our backlog of uh, guests if there's screenwriting you like if it's just directing it's just producing go to our website thefilmmakerspodcast.com where you can type in if you go to the podcast section you can type in just directors or just screenwriters obviously don't take off the just yeah and all of those will come up for you you can listen to all the episodes that i did you can write Dom Lamar's name and all of Dom's episodes will come up. Then you can listen to the other ones. <laughs> yes, if you can be bothered after that. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so, so thank you for supporting and do support us more. If you do like this, tell all your friends. Go on iTunes, go on Spotify, do rate this, do download it, be part of the team. Sign up for Jars's Holiday Fund, also called the, the Patreon. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, my holiday. Because I have massive holidays every year and obviously the money we make from this podcast. Uh, so, do, uh, yeah, go to Patreon. Patreon. Disclaimer, we are a non-profit. <laughs> we do this out of love for film. <laughs> As your lawyer, you had to say that. As my lawyer. As my lawyer, you had to say that. Uh, so that is patreon.com forward slash the filmmakers podcast. Link are in the show notes for all that. Check it out. Uh, if you want to email us any questions, thefilmmakerspodcast at gmail.com. And we have merch. Uh, we got 30% off right now because we're going to do a whole new range for the new year. 
So if you want a really cool t-shirt or a mug, don't be a mug and get some merch. Love that. Coming up soon as well, we're going to have an episode with the amazing Phil Hawkins. His film, Prancer Christmas Tale, is available now. So check it out. It's on Sky. It's a Sky original, so you can watch it now. It's a Christmas movie. It's amazing. But Phil will be on very soon talking all about how he made that. Mm. And we'll have our Christmas special coming up for you where all the hosts come on and chat shit for many hours just for you um what else I mean that's it what, 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 what do you want you got you, what, what more do you, you got Top Gun Maverick it's Top Gun Maverick ladies and gentlemen listen up <laughs> so sit back relax enjoy this week's filmmakers podcast with Top Gun Maverick director Joseph Kaczynski and the amazing Dom Lenoir thank you enjoy Welcome, Joseph Kaczynski, to the Filmmakers Podcast. We are absolutely delighted to have you here. In my mind, Top Gun is one of the most enjoyable cinema experiences I've been to in the last 10 years. Wow. How are you feeling about the the success and the unbelievable reception uh, of the movie? Uh, number one, I'm relieved, you know, that it worked because it, it was obviously a lot of hard work for everyone who worked on the film, uh, the bar set by the first film was very high mm. you know i'm i'm just very happy that the film was released on in theaters you know that was that was why we made it it's what we made it for and for a year or two there there was a lot of uncertainty as to you know when the film would come out and how people would see it but um we got it out uh, on the big screen and and it seems like people really enjoyed seeing it that way. So that's very gratifying. Did you feel any pressure uh, from the sort of the Tony Scott legacy? Uh, and I'd like to say as well that you've done an incredible job of bringing that back to life. I, I kind of was watching it and thinking this is Tony Scott 2.0. Oh, thank you. I'll take that as a huge compliment. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's no, uh, you can't fill his shoes. There's no replacing him. What he did with the first film was revolutionary and, you know, certainly his own, visual style and you know jerry's got to get a lot of credit too i was saying to jerry the other night for hiring the director of the hunger you know to make a big blockbuster film that's a really you know in hindsight it makes perfect sense but at the time it's certainly a, a brave decision but um yeah certainly i was inspired by the first film i saw it when i was 11 years old so it's one of those you know those films you see when you're young that make a huge impression they're always a part of you and getting to figure out you know, my version of a Top Gun movie that felt like it was in the same universe as Tony's film was a really wonderful uh, creative challenge. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it, exactly the same for me, the same age range. I mean, that was that was Hollywood for me growing up, was watching movies like Top Gun and Star Wars um, yeah. and those kind of, you know, those epic movies. And I, I watched it hundreds of times. And yeah, it was such a, a sort of a pleasure to to see that growing up. And to me, this felt like, it felt like a sort of a, a return to cinema uh, in, in a way, like the kind of films that I grew up loving, you know, the kind of really classic sort of Hollywood 80s, 90s action films. And you kind of like brought it back because a lot of reboots these days that they they feel like they're trying to do something new, but they're going too far away from what made the originals great. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that was really successful um, in in your adaption was creating something new, but but not kind of rewriting the rule book to the point where people didn't recognize what they what they grew up with. What was the sort of process of you even getting in, involved in in something like this? Well, it started with uh, 
Jerry Bruckheimer sending me a script, which okay. is a pretty Not bad way to start. It's a pretty epic, <laughs> epic thing to be able to talk about, you know, as yeah. a director. Um, well, Jerry, as you call him now. Yeah, Jerry, as, as I call him now. Yeah, he sent me a early draft of a script that they were working on in 2017, uh, which had a couple things in it that I liked. It, it had uh, the character of Penny Benjamin, which I thought was very clever. It also had Maverick. Uh, stealing an F-14 at the end, which was, you know, just, you know, obvious. You, you got to do that. So, but I had some ideas on uh, what Maverick's story could be, you know, where it starts and what the uh, the emotional spine of the film could be, because uh, that wasn't there yet. How I wanted to shoot it um, obviously wasn't on the page. So when I, I went into Jerry and kind of pitched my take on it, mm. Jerry really liked the ideas and said, you've got to pitch these to Tom in person. You know, you really need to get with him in a room. And I was like, great, let's do it. And he said, all right, well, Tom's shooting mission in Paris right now. So let's fly to Paris. We'll get some time with them and you can pitch it. So I flew with Jerry to Paris in, in, in May of 2017. <laughs> we had less than half an hour. Um, it was right in the middle of a shoot day, you know, to, to get Tom, uh, Chris McCory let Tom go from the set, which was very gracious of him. Um, and we met in a hotel room and I just uh, kind of, I had a presentation, I had a poster. Do you have like a pitch deck? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're, um, we're always talking about how good pitch decks are. Yeah, essentially, you know, on day one of photography, we released an image of Maverick staring at an airplane in the distance and it said, feel the need. I had a mock-up of that image as to kind of kick it off. Uh, and I just basically said to him, you know, I pitched him the, the rooster storyline, which I felt was kind of the emotional spine of the film. And the moment I uttered that, I could see the wheels in his head start to turn. Cause I think he came into that room thinking that there was probably no way he was going to make another Top Gun. But once I pitched that idea, I could see him all of a sudden start to wrap his head about how he could get back into this character and a reason to go back because he doesn't have to go back you it's know in fact yeah. it's very dangerous probably to go back it could have been an epic disaster but once he had an emotional reason uh and uh to the to to go back to maverick i think i could see the wheels start to turn then i pitched the idea of where to find maverick because that was always i think something that they hadn't quite figured out and i really like this idea of of finding him as a test pilot out in the middle of the desert, um, like Chuck Yeager at the end of The Right Stuff, you know, pushing the envelope of what's possible, still, you know, a, a pilot, you know, at the helm, flying aircraft and, and being Maverick, essentially, you know, um, going further than, faster than he should and getting himself in trouble. Uh, so I pitched that idea of the Dark Star sequence. Um, then I just, you know, talked about how I wanted to shoot it for real. I showed him some of these Navy videos where these pilots had captured their own training with little GoPros, you know, like one stuck to the, over their shoulder in, in the, on the canopy. And obviously Tom was, you know, that's the only way he'd make a Top Gun movie is if he could, um, capture it for real. Uh, and then finally I said, we can't call it Top Gun 2 because that's what it was called at the time. I said, <laughs> yeah. I said this is his story. We got to call it Top Gun Maverick. And I think that sealed the deal. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he he pulled out his phone and uh, from that room, you know, but with Jerry and I sitting there, he called the head of the studio and said, we're making another Top Gun. 
and they were very excited. That's power, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That is uh, that is power, and yeah, I don't I don't know if I'll ever see that again. But I mean, I, th- I think I think what I really love about this story, and it's kind of why I always make films and what always touched me about films was you know you're talking about the emotional arc but that that to me is is what separates you know good films from you know the incredible ones and, and the ones that sort of really stick with you um and you know the the original top gun was an incredibly powerful emotional film and i, I think I, that's what i kind of like about tony scott's some of his work is there's often a bit of melancholy and there's there's sadness and there's 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 grief and there's things to work through and, and i yeah i think i think that's that is the difference to me about making a good hollywood movie and a, a sort of an average hollywood movie um how did you approach sort of treating this as a franchise that's a blockbuster something huge whilst keeping that sort of authenticity uh, and was it challenging? Well, I had just come off a film that for me in my career was very important and an amazing experience. And that is uh, a movie called Only the Brave, a smaller movie about wildland firefighting, but a mm. very emotional experience because it was the story, true story of 19 firefighters that lost their lives in Arizona when they were trapped in a canyon by a by a massive wildfire. And um, on that film, I uh, worked with Miles Teller and Jennifer Connelly. And it was uh, a really uh, intense, hard film to make from a dramatic and emotional point of view. But for me as a director, an important one, because up to that point, I was kind of known for the two films I'd made, which were science fiction films, which, you know, are sometimes harder films to uh, emotionally engage an audience because you have so much visually going mm-hmm. on that it can be a bit overwhelming. So uh, I was coming off that film and I think I was just in the uh, right headspace to really approach this film like the first film as a drama, first and foremost, a rite of passage story um, of the sky, but wrapped in this massively you know, entertaining action film, but to approach it as a drama first. And obviously... I uh, I cast Jennifer and Miles in Top Gun, so you know I was I was using kind of bring some friends along, bring some friends along, but also <laughs> just bring along two tremendous actors that I knew were going to just infuse this film with the right energy and give Tom some really incredible actors to play opposite off of because because you you need you need actors that can go there with that kind of reactive emotional depth as well especially when you're handling like a really dramatic subject matter. And- yeah. And, you know, who two actors who had worked in dramatic films and could just go toe to toe with Tom, who's an incredible actor, you know, I mean, in the last, you know, we, I think maybe a younger generation sees the action films and knows him for these incredible sequences that he's able to do. But, um, you know, you look at the first 15, 20 years of his career and it's just, uh, I mean, it's a career like no other. The choices he made, the performances he put in are are incredible. So um, we have, you know, Jennifer, we have Miles, um, you know, Val came back, who another legend um, mm. that, you know, I've always wanted to work with. So, so what's the process for you 
casting people once i mean once you've got tom involved is it, is it just like every door's open you just start <laughs> ringing around and and it, it comes together very easily or, or is there still a bit of a challenge to sort of lock these these people down despite your relationship listen the director the the job of a director is you always have to convince people whether they're crew or cast to be in your film you can't ever approach it with the attitude of you're so lucky I'm calling you to be in Top Gun. I never approach it that way. It's always making the best case you can of why um, they're right for your film. So, you know, when it came to, you know, Jen and Miles and John Hamm and Ed Harris and Val, uh, you're you're making sure you're, you're that you're making a case for why uh, you want them to be in your film. With some of the other roles, with actors that, I was not familiar with. Uh, I have to give a lot of credit to Denise Chamian, our casting director, who just put, you know, faces and tape in front of me of people that she was excited about, but that I wasn't aware of. And so I looked at hundreds of auditions and uh, did in-person auditions with dozens of people to narrow it down to my top two or three for each role. And then I sat with Tom and Jerry and we watched those finals together and, and made our choices as a, as a team. And, uh, you know, Tom's experience casting Jerry's, I mean, Jerry's discovered so many, the list of actors that Jerry's discovered is too long to name off, but, um, having them hearing their gut reactions to the, you know, the choices that I had selected to narrow it down was, was really great. And I couldn't be happier and more proud of the cast we put together for this film. Yeah. I mean, the, the Phoenix character is great and, uh, you know, she really makes an impression, uh, as well. Yeah. And Monica will tell you, I called her back like four or five times, you know, it was like, uh, oh, what's oh, repeat auditions? Yes. Okay, it was like, nice, okay, yeah. now, you know, Joe wants you to come back. This time he wants you to wear a flight suit, you know. <laughs> uh, this time, you know, you're going to be in a chair and he's going to talk you through an aerial sequence. Um, so, yeah, you know, Monica uh, was someone I was just really intrigued with um, from the start. Uh, she just got such a unique combination of qualities and an inner strength that you just can't fake um, and then, you know, by the time we got her in the F-18, she was like a warrior, you know, she just, she did an incredible job. And, uh, so yeah, you know, luckily it all worked out, but casting is the most important job a director has. And if you do it correctly, you've really, you know, set yourself, uh, up well to, to, to succeed. Yeah. So what was the, what was the process? I mean, you obviously had some suggestions in the writing process, um, what was your next step in terms of developing this into something that you, you know, what was a, f a finished product sort of ready to, ready to shoot? Cause you, you collaborated with Christopher McQuarrie as well. What, yes. what was his involvement? Yes. Jerry's and three, right. Yeah. Three writers. The first thing I did was I went onto a carrier for a couple of days. That must've been fun. Yeah. i drove down to San Diego, caught a Greyhound flight, which is a, um, it's a transport that flies from San Diego to the carrier, catches the arresting wire. Um, so you get to experience what it's like to land on a, a carrier deck. Oh, wow. And I spent a couple of days out there with the Navy and just experiencing what it's like to live on a carrier. And um, I got to run my story pitch past, you know, the... Uh, the Navy members, Naval aviators and um, the commanding officer. And I got to hear their feedback to the story that 
you know, we were putting together. Um, so that was an invaluable experience. The whole third act mission um, mm. was done in collaboration with okay. Naval Aviators because basically the writer, Eric Singer, and I put the question to a bunch of them, which is, what is the gnarliest mission <laughs> that you could ever imagine having to go on? And they basically said, you know, a low-level ingress through mountains, to do a laser guided uh, drop on a yeah. you know a small target with a high G pullout, and then having SAM threats and fifth gen fighters on top of you, you know, in enemy territory. So like that whole sequence was built from their kind of dreaming up the the toughest mission. They added one extra element which we didn't put in the movie, which was and you do it at night. Oh right. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, okay, well, yeah. that's pretty, pretty crazy. We can't see it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, you know, it would mean doing yeah. the whole thing in night vision goggles, and I was like, yeah, I don't want to see that. Um, I want to, I want to be, you know, in some uh, epic landscape. So, mm. so then Eric Singer laid out the first draft, which kind of laid out the structure of the film. Aaron Kruger came in and added uh, a second layer, really brought in some really essential elements like the great balls of fire sequence with Rooster and mm. the scene with Iceman and some uh, really strong emotional character-driven connections. And then Chris McCory came on a month or two before we started shooting uh, after he had finished Mission 6, I guess, and uh, and really just polished up what we had in a beautiful way, you know, made every, at that point we had cast the film. So Chris has this amazing ability to tailor roles to actors and to the voice that actor has, um, and really customize each role for each, each actor in the film. Um, so it was, uh, an incredible collaboration between three very talented screenwriters and typically you'd think you know you have three writers of that caliber they're each going to kind of pull it in a different mm -hmm. direction this was a case of really each one moved it down the field uh in a wonderful way to get it to you know where we ended up i, I think that's a very a very important point about sort of collaborating with, with writing when, when you're when you're taking notes from a producer no matter whether it's a small indie or, or a big studio film I've, I've always felt it's about is this note like i'm going in this direction this is where the, the movie's going this is kind of where the story and the characters are authentically going if i take these notes can i find a way to keep it sort of sailing in the right direction because otherwise I think people can can get lost and they can sort of try and move one away to, to please one person and another to please another. So I, yep. I suppose it's also your job, is it, to communicate clearly like where this is going so that when they're giving you notes, they're sending the ship in the right way or the yep. airplane. Staying on target is, is often the job of the director. And then you remember you've also got the testing process. You know, mm -hmm. at some point you're going to have a test audience weigh in. And like you said, it's... We often use the term, what's the note behind the note, which is what are the, what's the really core of what they're getting at, you know? Um, or the area that needs work. Right, because like an audience might say, oh, um, this, this part of the movie feels a little slow. And you could look at that and go, oh, well, we just need to tighten it up and make it shorter. That might not be the actual problem. The reason that they're, the movie feels slow there is because they're not connected to the story. They're not tracking with the story. They're confused. They don't know how someone feels. Um, so there, you have to kind of dissect and, and get underneath the hood a little bit and figure out what's the real problem here and how do we fix it. Um, and that's a, uh, that's a process that, you know, just you have to go through it a number of times, the testing process to figure out 
what you want to do and, um, and, and how you want to fix it. But yeah, if you just do what everyone says, um, yeah, you could end up with a, a film that's getting pulled in a bunch of different ways. And usually mm. that doesn't work out so well, mm. but, um, you know, on this film, I had a pretty, uh, a plus plus group of producers, um, to work with. So you're talking about people who have a lot of experience, um, working in this arena and weren't going to let the movie, you know, get derailed. Mm. Yeah. No, and I think that, I think that certainly would have, would have helped in, in the process rather than if you'd gone in sort of as a new director, say into a studio system where it probably could have been quite challenging, I imagine. Yeah, no, it's, it's working on big movies is a, um, it's a challenge because yeah, there's the more money that's being spent, the more pressure mm. uh, there is for the movie to appeal to the widest possible audience. But also you learn that you know, and you know, Jerry says this all the time, you really don't know how a movie's gonna perform until the weekend it comes out. You can have a movie that's testing off the charts. Um, it doesn't, that doesn't translate to uh, a successful film. And you can have a movie that doesn't test well with a particular test audience for whatever reason, but somehow when it comes out, finds a whole new life and, and succeeds beyond. I mean, there's hundreds of stories of various movies that one way or the other were, were unexpected surprises. So. Uh, you just have to ultimately, you got to go with, um, your gut and what you truly believe and, and, mm. you know, make the movie, you know, that you, you set out to make. Yeah, I think, I think that's it. And I, I think, you know, for me, it's always, it's always a bit about being emotionally connected to the characters, having a story that means something. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes stuff is cut out because it sort of maybe doesn't test too well, but then what you the, the reverse side of that is that you have something that maybe feels disjointed and then you lose yourself in the, the arc of someone, which can be counterproductive. And listen to your audience. I mean, you know, you may be trying to communicate a certain idea, but for whatever reason, it's not translating. Mm. So um, when, when you find out they're not getting it, um, you got to fix that. Uh, I do think that, showing the movie to people is a very, very important part of the process. You need to get, you need to step back. Uh, you can get certainly in, too far inside your own film. You know things that, uh, about the film or the story that other people who have never seen it before have no idea. So it, it is important to, not that it has to be audience tested in the traditional way, but just showing it to people, showing it to friends, mm. showing it to people who have no, you have no connection to um, is, is an important uh, very important part of the process. So you're not just making the film purely for yourself. You're making it and, and you're taking on, on board. What, yeah. What? Well, you have to decide what's the effect you want it to have. Mm. And so, yeah, you can make it for yourself, but um, if no one else likes you're it, you're going to ignore <laughs> what anyone says about it. Don't be surprised when you release the film, if, <laughs> yeah. if the feedback is the same. So yeah, yeah you just have to uh, be aware and okay with what people are telling you, because that's probably going to, um, remain the same unless you make some changes. So, so getting into sort of casting past the act actors into your HODs, how does that process work for you? Was there any outside suggestions? Were they were the studio sort of saying, okay, we'd like this list of DOPs, or, or was it like, okay, this is my guy, I want to, or my girl, this is this is who I want for the. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, the, uh, the you know, the first one usually for me is cinematographer, and I've made five films now with Claudio Miranda. So, mm. um, you so know, that's a good start. That's a good start. <laughs> uh, Claudio, uh, he's first and foremost an artist, but he's also very, very clever when it comes to figuring out how to do something that hasn't been done before. And 
on every film we've made, we've always had to solve some new sort of challenge, whether it was the lit suits of Tron Legacy or the front projection of Oblivion. You know, we're always kind of trying to solve uh, some sort of problem. And obviously on this film, it was, you know, can we fit six IMAX quality cameras into one of these cockpits? And that was a year long process, including essentially creating a whole new camera along with Sony that was able to do it. And, and Claudio had a huge hand in the creation of the Venice camera from the very start. Um, so Claudio was, for me, was, was a no brainer uh, in terms of um, who would be right for this film. Uh, the other departments, um, yeah, just, you know, sometimes there are people I've always wanted to work with that weren't available or recommendations. You know, Marlene Stewart, I'd worked with on Oblivion. She's our uh, costume designer. Um, Jeremy Hindle, the production designer, was someone that I always admired. And uh, so I was very lucky to be able to get him to work on this film. But yeah, you kind of go through and, you know, you look for people who ultimately have great taste, you know, because uh, yeah. you want to be able to empower them. You don't want to have to make every decision, creative decision, you know, you want to be able to give them uh, a concept or an idea or a feeling or explain the tone of the film and then let them come back to you with their own ideas. And you need talented people to do that. I've, I've always thought taste is actually like one of the most important things about being a good filmmaker because you grow up and you watch films and you know this is a good film, this is maybe not a good film. And it, it's often make or break, um, I think sort of tonally and, and also, you know, what you just said about um, your collaborators. It's as much as them being on the same page as being talented. Um, because again, I suppose it's it's going in the right, the right direction uh, altogether. Uh, so, I mean, do you like to get a mixture of people that you know already and some new faces to sort of mix it up? Yeah, I, I love meeting new people and, um, you know, looking for for uh, people who bring in ideas that, that you would n never think of before. Um, so, yeah, it's like you said, it's uh, the job of the director. You know, I think Kubrick called the director the uh, idea and taste machine. You know, you're, um, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of, you're, you're constantly coming up with ideas or solutions ways of solving problems um, and an overall sense of tone and uh, taste, I guess, for the film and what it is you're, what it is you're looking for, what it is you want to feel like, you know, I'm always pulling references or making sure that everyone understands what kind of film uh you're making because you're so much more powerful if you can align these thousands of people to all push in the same direction. If you can set a North Star for everyone, you can get so much more accomplished. If you're changing your mind all the time mm. or indecisive, you have a lot of people working very hard, but the movie's not going anywhere. And that uh, that's a disaster, you know, a waste of resources. So I like to try to, as early as possible, get everyone moving in the right direction um, doesn't mean you can't course correct during the way or change your mind, but um, it's important to, to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the job. So, so uh, in terms of your prep with the, the cinematography, um, how does that process start for you as a, as a filmmaker? Do you send mood boards? Do you say, okay, here's, here's a bunch of films that we're thinking? You've already mentioned the sort of the naval reference um, videos, but can you sort of talk a bit more for sort of Yeah, I mean, one thing that, um, I'm lucky to be able to do is uh, in between films, I shoot uh, 
commercials for television. Mm. And the reason I do that is because I find it's an amazing test bed to try try new things, whether it's crew, like we were talking before, or um, lenses or a camera system. And on this movie, uh, while we were prepping, I got Sony contacted me and said, we have this you know, new Sony Venice camera system. It's just a prototype, um, but we'd love for you to kind of come up with something to try it out. So I, I basically wrote a short film called The Dig, which was has no dialogue in it, but is like an eight minute short story that takes place in Los Angeles that gave us the opportunity to shoot with the Venice for the first time um, in its prototype stage. Uh, and then when we were shooting that, we were talking to them about the Rialto system, which is where you can remove the sensor from the body so that you have a much smaller form factor to put it in really small places. You know, at mm. that time we were thinking about car interiors, but then I got a job from, I think it was Hyundai or something where they brought out the Rialto prototype with all these wires sticking out of it for the first time. Uh, and that was like in m April of 2018. And we got to use that for the first time on a Hyundai commercial. So the, we the whole time we're testing for Top Gun while shooting, you know, commercials and, and trying different techniques. So, it's a uh, it's a great thing for Claudio and I to to use as a test bed and start to figure out. And the whole time, you know, we're having conversations about the movie and and how we're going to shoot it. Shortly after that, Claudio started doing some tests in a small jet called Nell Thirty Nine, and that's when we realized or started to figure out what it is we were going to try to achieve in Top Gun. So, so in, in terms of the look, were you were you referencing the original? quite a lot yes i mean because i mean that first the first intro like five minutes yes uh, i mean i i had i had tears of joy oh yeah uh, and, and i think uh, i think most people it's like when they have a when they have a, a child or <laughs> they get married i was just like with the first two three minutes it was tears of joy because it was it was the music but it, it felt like it felt like the original and i knew i was in safe hands and you did that with you know everything in that first five minutes, yeah. Um, and it's such an important sequence. Yeah. Um, so you know, can you talk about sort of prepping that? How because it's you know it's so important that first ten minutes of the movie. movie yeah, that it? was that's exactly it. The first you know, first few minutes of this film, I wanted the audience to know that we were making a Top Gun film from the font of the opening titles, Harold Faltermeyer's music, the paragraph at the beginning that describes what Top Gun is. Obviously, we changed it slightly. We added two words. Um, to the paragraph and that opening sequence uh, on the Teddy Roosevelt and the and the USS Lincoln, um, which kind of had its origins with my very first trip I ever took on the carrier, what we talked about earlier. Mm. I went on there with my Leica and I shot all those stills, you know, the little bobblehead bouncing on the on the bridge, oh, you know, all yeah. that stuff were stills that, that originated as stills that I shot on my first trip to the, you know, spent two days just photographs of all these people doing their jobs. And then obviously the inspiration of the original, um, you know, the wiggling fingers and, and all that stuff worked that in. So we, I built up a, you know, 150 storyboards um, of wow. what this opening sequence could be. And we sent a crew Claudio and a couple operators out there for a week and we sent Skywalker sound and their record us out for a week and we just captured as much footage as we could to to build that opening montage but the idea is to tell the audience don't worry we love Top Gun as much yeah. as you do <laughs> yeah. uh, and um, 
and that ultimately, you know, after you've kind of been lulled into this safe space uh, with Maverick and the ninja, once you get to China Lake and he pulls in that hangar and you see Dark Star, you realize, okay, now it's going to go in on its own journey and we're going to tell a new story. One little funny aside about shooting on the carrier, we had this thing on the top of the camera called Light Ranger and basically what it does is it is able to send a signal, it sends like a little sonar signal out that bounces back and it tells you where focus is. So it's what uh, the first AC uses to make sure that things are in focus because they have this little overlay on the monitor that shows you the objects that are on the screen are sharp or out of focus. And it's a, just a nice little tool to make sure that you're getting good focus. Whenever we would point the camera at the F-35 stealth fighter, the focus would go to infinity. <laughs> well, that's a good advert for them. <laughs> yeah, so you couldn't pull focus on the uh, on the stealth fighter, which I thought was a, yeah, which I guess proves that it works. Um, but I just thought that was a, like a cool little detail uh, about shooting on the deck. So, I mean, we, we talked about taste and we talked about this, the importance of this opening sequence and the, the opening sequence really does, you know, you, you're immediately like, oh, thank thank God this isn't going to be a, a crappy reboot. You know, this is this is going to be a good movie. And it doesn't let go like after that. I mean, I will sort of say, say that. But something that I've always, um, you know, I, I think it comes down to taste as well. It's a lot of people try and avoid cliches and they avoid what you might call cheesiness but i think i think it's really about balance um and actually like I mean, when it's done well like in in this i suppose it comes from the characters but there's moments that you expect to happen and, and the film is setting up for them to happen you want them to to happen you know like when when rooster hits the the full throttle in, in the in the thing you know you, you're desperate for it to happen it's, it's such a satisfying moment how do you balance those moments and, and make sure it's fun but it isn't one of those like sort of let's put in a cheap laugh moment that i think ruins a lot of movies i think it all comes in the service of story you know if you're if what you're putting in generally serves the story or serves the character i think the choice is solid you know uh the word cheesy gets thrown around mm. a lot i think now with you know a certain generation and i think what the what that translates to sometimes is earnest. Mm. You know, the film is very earnest. There's not a lot of sarcasm mm. in the film, which I think differentiates it from a lot of other uh, big films because um, it's just that that tone is very different. It is definitely more of a throwback tone in that it wears its heart on its sleeve mm. um, and is very um, honest, I guess, and very truthful and people say what they mean. Chris McQuarrie would, would always say that in Top Gun, subtext is text. People just say, you know, what they're feeling or what they're thinking. And, and yeah, it comes off a little earnest, but that suits the film and this kind of story that we're telling about Maverick. Uh, so yeah, that was something we were aware of, that it was doing things a little different than maybe other films that, you know, are its contemporary, but that's okay. Um, we have you know, all this history with these characters uh, and 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 um, it just felt like we were being true to the story and that was always our kind of guidepost. Uh, yeah, I suppose, I suppose when comedy comes from characters and it comes from the story and it feels authentic, I think, I think the audience are much more 
responsive to that that kind of way. I think it's when it's like, okay, we need more humor in this section, so let's have a gag. Yeah, that people don't. Um, yeah, people know when a joke's been slotted in. Yeah, yeah, just sort of slapped across the the front of it. Yeah, and yeah, if they're invested in your characters and it's coming from a true place of who that character is in that moment, you know, like. For instance, you know, I think the biggest laugh that I've seen in watching the movie with an audience is when Maverick comes running in across the snow and he and Rooster have their argument, (laughs) you know, after both being shot down. Um, It's a very funny moment and it is a little broad. And I even remember shooting it with Miles and Miles said to me, he's like, you know, he's like, the tone feels like we're in a different movie. Mm right now than the one we've been shooting. And I said, yeah, and that's a good thing. We should have a shift Mm. here, you know, because now you guys are not fighting against each other anymore. Now you're allies. Now it's, now it's a little bit more like the first film. Mm. And you've earned it by that point. You've earned it. Yeah. They've, they've had so much conflict after, you know, an hour and 20 minutes of, you know, they're, you know, them having all this conflict and, and drama between them. And now, the, the kind of release you get from seeing them drop all that and just band together and work together to get out of there is is so much fun. And it really starts to feel more like the energy of the first film for that last 25 minutes. You mm. feel that Maverick-Goose-like relationship, but now it's with Rooster in the backseat. And that's that's what we were, you know, that's what we were aiming for. But I, I do remember shooting that and even Miles noting that it feels like all of a sudden everything's changed and it turned out to be a good thing. Mm, definitely. And, and I think it's in moderation as well. It, you, you haven't sort of, you haven't thrown it into every scene. And, and as you say, we, the characters earned it. What was, what were some of the main challenges of actually doing the shoot itself? Probably mostly from a sort of a filming perspective. Yeah. Like, every day is a challenge. Every day. <laughs> how, how long was the shoot for a start? You know, yeah. you know, that's a good question. I believe it was about, 89 or 90 days of shooting, but there was also like 40 days of aerial uh, only days. So mm. um, they, those days might have overlapped a little bit, but it was a lot. I mean, I was there every day of it. Uh, um, it was shot, you know, basically over nine months from wow. September 2018 to July 2019. But yeah, every day is a challenge, whether it's shooting aerials, which are very tedious. It's a very tedious process where you're just getting, you know, seconds or maybe a minute of footage every day Wow. Uh, to, you know, the dramatic scenes, the scenes in the, the hard deck where you're dealing with, you know, hundreds of extras and introducing five or six characters, uh, even a scene like the sailing scene which you think relative to airplanes would be easy. That was actually the hardest. We shot that three times. Wow. The first two times I had no wind. So it was me and Jen and Tom sitting on a boat in the middle of, <laughs> of the water. Not, not the worst thing to do though. We, we, yeah, there's like the dolphins swimming yeah. around us, but there was no wind and no movement. So it was very, very boring. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we had to end up having to go to San Francisco to shoot that sequence, which was a challenge uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but just... I have profound respect from anyone who makes a movie about sailing mm. um, because, you know, you can't control the wind. And right. so uh, that was a challenge. Yeah. So 
the whole movie was a challenge, uh, but a, uh, a very exciting, very fun one, very memorable one, you know, standing out in the middle of a restricted training range and having F-18s blast, you know, five feet above your head. Um, you know, there's just, I have so many great memories. The, the shot where the F-18 flies over camera and then pulls up and creates the double swirl when mm -hmm. Maverick's proving the course can be flown. I just remember all of us just fist pumps in the air. <laughs> you know, it's like one of those moments where you're like, you know, that shot's going to be in the movie. Yeah. Um, so just, you know, a lot of great memories for, you know, hard fought shots, but at the end of the day, um, worth it. So, so, so just, just a quick sort of re recap on what shooting involves for aerial stuff. Is it a mix of CGI and, live stuff because obviously not all the actors could be doing some of the, the stuff that yeah we weren't shooting airplanes down you know <laughs> with missiles uh they weren't avoiding uh surface to air uh so yeah we shot as much as we could we always shot real airplanes mm. um and and got at least the base footage uh as much in camera as possible obviously things like bombs and missiles and explosions we weren't going to do anything that put any actor at any level of risk, but yeah. they're always being flown by real Navy, naval aviators, often Top Gun pilots. Mm. Um, Phoenix was always flown by a female aviator, which I think That's is cool. cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then, you know, we would, we, we would shoot real aircraft. And then if we had to, we wanted to be an aircraft that doesn't exist or doesn't fly anymore, we would, you know, use very sophisticated techniques to reskin an F-18 and turn it into something else. Mm. So we're always shooting a real aircraft to start with, but sometimes we're turning it into something else, which is a fun magic trick uh, that we kind of really employed on this film. So talking about some of the emotional scenes and your, your sort of process as a director working with actors, um, I mean, let's take, let's take the Val Kilmer uh, scene, for instance. Like, I mean, obviously these actors, you, you send them out there and they're going to do an incredible job um anyway but what what's the what's your process in do you like to do rehearsals do you like to sort of discuss from the script and send a few ideas how, how does all that definitely sort of start work? it all starts with the script everyone's sitting down and reading the scene together you know val and tom and me and chris and jerry sitting around a table and reading this reading this scene table through read, yeah what's that a table read yeah, yeah table read yeah, nice. you don't have to be acting just reading mm. you know read through it discuss what do we what's the story we're trying to tell here what do we want um the someone who's watching it to feel you know everyone's got their uh, ideas or opinions um but you want to make sure that you work out the big stuff ahead of time mm. rehearsals is kind of it depends on the actor i find some actors love to rehearse some actors love to block so they know where they're moving but maybe don't want to really rehearse um, the emotion, emotion too much. You know, Miles, I've made three movies with him. Uh, he doesn't like to do too much in rehearsals because he wants to save it for the day. Mm. But every actor's different. Um, the scene with Iceman and Maverick, like you referred to, once we'd been through the table read and everyone's ideas and the scene, everyone was happy with the scene, no point in rehearsing with those guys. You know, they're... They're going to deliver. Masters, yeah. And so, you know, you get on the day and I try to create an environment where everything's figured out in terms of uh, ahead of time, in terms of, you know, the where the camera is, what the environment's like, what the lighting is, um, you know, maybe a little bit of blocking, but I try to create as much space for the actors to do their thing 
uh, from the beginning and only give notes if I feel like there's something else worth trying. Um, but I would say I'm not the most heavy handed when it comes to prescripting a performance. I like to hire actors um, who bring something to the table and just create an environment where they can feel very free to try, try things, experiment, yeah. mix it up, um, and uh, try to get those moments that are really special that really make films great. And do you, do you ever struggle on something like a Hollywood movie like this where actors maybe, you know, because I suppose there's so much to plan in terms of the visual side and it's such a big production with stunts and everything. It, do you ever have a, a situation where, okay, the, the actor's struggling with motivations, but it's very hard to move everything around on the sort of the production side, like move the camera around because it's you've just been you know, a massive dolly shot set up or that kind of thing. Um, do, you, do you have those kind of problems or... or do you, do you find like there, there's just enough time to get around those things? For, no, for I mean, you have to be, you have to be prepared ahead of time. You know, I love to over prepare and make sure that, you know, you know what your plan is for the day. I like to have a plan that everyone knows. And so that I'm comfortable changing it if it needs to change. Mm. But yes, you know, sometimes on movies like this, there are moments where it feels a little ridiculous because you don't have the actors have nothing to react to. The scene that comes to mind is when Maverick's doing the, proving the course can be flown in two minutes and 15 seconds. Tom's side of that scene was an absolute blast to film because Tom's in the plane doing something that no actor's ever done before. Mm. Um, probably no Navy pilot's ever done before, which is fly that canyon um, at that altitude with you know a Blue Angel pilot uh, in the front seat. So from his end, it's extremely exhilarating. The other side of that scene, which is everyone staring at the screen and reacting is me on a microphone <laughs> at the head of that, in that set, yeah. talking them through what they're seeing on a screen that isn't happening. Mm. So, you know, all those reaction scenes in that scene are them just reacting to me talking, you know, through Mavericks on the course. He just went through the first gate, you know, and me trying to kind yeah. of pump them <laughs> up. A bit more excited you know, than that. Yeah. And he made it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to perform yeah. here on the podcast. No, 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 but, no. you know, giving my best to try to get them to understand what it is they're reacting to. I'm never going to be able to be as exciting as if the scene was actually happening, mm -hmm. but the actors understand what we're going for. And so there are scenes like that where you have to step in and make sure you're getting the performance you need so that when you put the scene together, it all works. But um, yeah, it's it's a unique job. I mean, I, I, I you know, it's, it's, there's so many different hats you wear as a director on a movie like this. Sometimes it feels like you're CEO of a major corporation and some days you're lining up the perfect mm -hmm. shot, you know, which is what we think of as directing. But there's, there's a whole bunch of different things you have to do uh, in the job. And for me, that's what makes it exciting is that it's different every single day. Was it as tightly paced with what you'd filmed on the page? Because it's a, it's a very, like, from the moment it goes, even the, I mean, you're basically either in an amazing drama sequence or you're in really gripping, exciting sort of um, flight, flight yeah. sequences. Was, was it that tight? Uh, or no. has that been, was that the editor that's, that's kind no, of... No, it got, it got tightened and tightened and tightened. There were scenes, we shot several scenes, you know, that aren't in the final movie um, that, okay. you know, would have 
that slowed it down, you know, um, and ultimately found out weren't necessary to tell the story we were telling. So no, of course it's not that tight the first time you put together, um, you, you put it all together and you quickly realize you don't need this or you need a different version of this scene or you can tighten it up by, you know, there's, there's sequences in the film that are completely out of the order that they were scripted, but for the better. Um, so it's the editorial process is it's, you're remaking the movie all over again. Mm. Um, and again, that's what makes it fun is it's a, it's a totally different experience than shooting. And Hans Zimmer came on board at one point in the, the process? Very early. I mean, it was from the beginning, it was uh, Harold Faltermeyer who, who wrote all the beautiful themes that you hear throughout the film uh, and some tracks that are basically unchanged from the first film, mm. um, teaming him up with Hans, who has a long history with Jerry Bruckheimer and Tom Cruise. They all did Days of Thunder together, actually. Oh, uh, yeah. uh, always wanted to work with him. And then Lauren Balf uh, came in to um, help facilitate the fact that when COVID hit, we were kind of spread all over the world, uh, including musicians um, who, you know, we couldn't record musicians together. They had to record their instruments one at a time. So Lauren did a masterful job of pulling all that together. And then finally, you know, the kind of gift that Lady Gaga gave us halfway through. Yeah, we were done with uh, our main photography at that point when she gave us a demo of this, this incredible song that ended up Hans ended up weaving into the orchestral themes of the movie. Uh, so um, it's, again, another idea of four super talented people collaborating on something that feels very much um, of one whole. Amazing. Just to, just to wrap up the last question, sure. if you could give your younger self um, a little bit of advice going into it, because I think a lot of people have moments in their career where they're struggling or they're not making it up to the next step that they want to from like indie to bigger stuff. Um, what might that be for, from you? Advice to my younger self? Or to someone starting out, maybe, just to, who's, who wants to make Hollywood movies? Uh, don't give up. It sounds very... Mm. Um, <laughs> generic but you know when i first moved to los angeles to be a director uh my first 15 months i think i pitched on 26 or 27 commercials and got zero wow so um you're going to hear a lot of no's at the beginning because no one wants to take a risk on someone who hasn't made anything before mm. but keep at it keep pushing and when that opportunity arrives be ready and then knock it out of the park amazing Joseph it's been an absolute pleasure and I really think I think to make a Hollywood movie at this level uh, is a really big achievement and I hope it does scoop up at the awards uh, this year thank you so much I appreciate this was fun Thank thank you Thank you for tuning in to the Filmmakers Podcast today. If you'd like to support our ongoing efforts to bring the filmmaking world to life, have a look at our Patreon page.